Welcome to Saving Grace Church, located in Indiana, Pennsylvania. Our mission at Saving Grace Church is to love God, love others, and reach the world for Christ. We hope that this message brings you closer to God and helps strengthen your walk with Christ. Good morning. I am, I am really excited to uh, have Tom here. He is uh, a pastor at Dutille Church in Cranberry. Uh, he grew up in Indiana, PA, so already this morning with walking around with him, many of you have come up to him and said, oh, by the way, I, I was your uh, baseball coach, or I was your Sunday school teacher, or I knew you from this, or, or that sort of thing. So a lot of people uh, I know know Tom very well. Um, I, I would like to try and share one quick story, if I may, real quick. Uh, I know Tom because um, he was a youth member at the time I was a youth director at Grace United Methodist Church uptown. And as a part of that, we would go um, to Creation uh, Festival every year uh, in Mount Union, PA. And so as a part of that, we would, as a youth group, we would have... Um, nightly worship and and devotions with our whole group and so we were sitting around the fire one night and and tom um we would give opportunity for people to share and so tom got up and started sharing what the lord had on his heart and it was it was powerful it was uh he was so articulate he was passionate he was just, you could tell that the spirit was, was just leading him in what he had to say. And then he fainted. <laughs> Completely just, we were just glad he didn't fall in the fire when he went down. Uh, it was a long day. I think we, he was a little dehydrated that day and that sort of thing. Um, but it was amazing because at that, that was the night, he was 14 years old at that point. And that was the night that we all felt that Tom would be a pastor someday, that, that, that God would call him into pastoral ministry. And, and he's here this morning doing just that role. So it was really amazing to me to see Tom, uh, just the passion that he has for the Lord and, and just seeing him go through those, those steps. So it's really encouraging. Would you guys welcome Tom Parkinson this morning? Well, good morning, sinners, and good morning, saints. I'm going to move this in case I faint. Uh, on behalf of my son Isaac and myself, uh, my wife Amy and our daughter Naomi. Naomi came up sick this morning, so they're not with us, but we just want to thank you uh, for your hospitality and welcome of our family. I want to thank uh, the worship team, uh, the band, the tech team, and all of those who make worship happen here Thank you for what you do and for your faithfulness. It is really a joy for us to be able to worship with you today, and I'm thankful for it. Uh, if you're out there online, I want to say hello to you as well. Uh, these virtual things we do this day, I want you to know you're part of this fellowship as well, and I pray that you will feel the Spirit connecting us even over the Internet. Uh, as, as Dave said, uh, I grew up in Indiana, and this is the first time uh, since high school that I've been invited to preach at a church in Indiana and I am reminded that when Jesus went to his hometown to preach in Luke chapter 4, by the end of the sermon, they tried to run him out of town and throw him off a cliff. So, uh, so I wore my hiking boots in case I need to go through the woods today. Uh, but I pray 
uh, I pray the message today will encourage you. Uh, I am aware that you are studying the Gospel of Matthew this year, and, and last week you were in Matthew chapter 4, and today we're going to take a little pause on the Matthew study, and we're going to go back into the Old Testament, into the book of Exodus. Now, before we get into the message, I will say to you, there are echoes of Exodus everywhere in Matthew, and you've already seen some of them. Right, in Matthew chapter 1, you remember Herod. Uh, Matthew chapter 1 into Matthew chapter 2, Herod uh, put out the order to kill all of the firstborns in uh, Judea. And Herod looked a lot like Pharaoh back in the early chapters of Exodus. And Jesus and his mother, Mary and Joseph, they had to flee as refugees to Egypt to find shelter. And so Jesus himself took this trip down to Egypt and would have seen all the sights uh, that is mentioned in the book of Exodus. And then when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, he was in the desert for 40 days, reminiscent of the 40 years in which the uh, Israelites found themselves in the desert after freed from Egypt. My point is, in four short chapters, you've already seen echoes of Exodus everywhere, and you're going to continue to see it. Next week, you're going to be in the Sermon on the Mount. And in the same way that the law of God came from Mount Sinai, you're going to be up on the mountaintop again getting teaching and instruction from the mouth of Jesus. So I hope that while we're pausing the Matthew study today, that it will not feel like we've left Matthew behind, but that you'll see that the Word of God is one word, <laughs> one word across 66 books. And so I, I pray that uh, this message will continue to be the Word of God. If you have your Bible, I encourage you to open to Exodus chapter 33. And just put your finger there because we're going to dive into that text in just a moment. But before we dive into the message, here's something that I really believe. I believe that when we come into the house of the Lord and when we make ourselves available, that God can speak to us. But I also know that we can come into the house of the Lord and, and we can watch our clocks and we can think about the crock pot that's set at home and we can think about all the other things that we have to do and we can be closed off when we come into the house of the Lord. So I want us to take a moment to just pray that we would be open to the movement of the Spirit through the gift of the Word, and that we would be open to the idea that God wants to speak a fresh word into our hearts and in our lives today. So as you are able, I, want to, I just want to encourage you, could you just hold your hands open like this, a spirit of receptivity, and I invite you to go with me to the Lord in prayer. Almighty God, your Word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. By your word, we know the truth, and the truth sets us free. And we come now, God, into your presence to open your scriptures, and we open ourselves up to hear from you. God, remove every thought that would distract us. Remove everything that would keep us from hearing from you. We make ourselves available in this moment, O oh God, and I would offer a personal prayer that either through me or in spite of me, you would speak to your people this day. For it's in the name of Jesus, our Lord, we pray. Amen. So when I was 11 years old, my family took a summer vacation to Cape Cod, Massachusetts. And during the hours-long drive to get up there, Mom and Dad told us, that we were going to have a daily budget for fun activities. And she had envelopes, and on the envelope was the name of every day of the week, and inside the envelope there was cash. And when we had spent the cash, we were done with the fun for the day. Parents, this is how you budget 
just how you budget a vacation in the cash spending days of the world. And as we were approaching the cottage where we were going to be staying, I was immediately captivated by something that I knew we were going to have to spend some of that money on. It was the most beautiful, breathtaking putt-putt course I'd ever seen in my life. Don't you know you got to drive 13 hours to find good putt-putt? And it had lighthouses on all the holes, and the putting greens looked like they were brand new. And I said, Mom, we have got to spend some of our money to play putt-putt at that course. And she said, yeah, 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 we'll, we'll, we'll get to it. I said, Mom, I'm serious. We've got to go play putt-putt there. And she said those, those words, I promise. I promise we'll go. She said, we'll go on Sunday afternoon. Now, it was still early in the week. Sunday was days away. And for the next five days, we would drive past that putt-butt course, and I would almost salivate with visions of glory. Dave knows this about me. I'm a very competitive person, and I dreamed of shooting birdies on this putt-butt course. Well, Sunday came, and I grew up in one of those households where you never took vacation from church. And so every time we went on vacation, we would find a church and we would worship. And so we went to church on Sunday morning. And they got to that point in the service where the ushers come forward to collect the offering. And my dad was sitting at the end of the pew, and I was sitting in the middle of the pew. And I looked, and I saw my dad put a wad of cash in the offering plate. You know what I was thinking? My thought was, well, that money probably came out of today's envelope, and that's my putt-putt money. And so without thinking much, when the plate came my way, I stuck my hand in it, grabbed the offering out, and put it back in my pocket. And I did not consider that my mother was sitting next to me and that we were visitors in somebody else's church. And the usher looked at me with eyes as wide as saucers because he witnessed my thievery. Well, needless to say, my mother was embarrassed. And after the service, that embarrassment quickly turned into anger. And then I spent the next few hours groveling. Have any of you ever groveled? You know what it is to grovel. Groveling's when I know I messed up. Can we just forget this ever happened? And by the way, can I not bear consequences for this? Because you know when you're in this kind of trouble, what is going to happen, but you are not going to get to play putt-putt at that place you're dreaming about. And finally, I said, Mom, you promised you promised I could play putt-putt today. Please let me go. And my mother looked at me, and now the tears were welling in her eyes. And she handed me the envelope, and she said, Here, you take your brothers and sister, and you go play putt-putt. But I'm not coming with you. Well, I'm a mama's boy. I don't like it when my mom's not happy. And even though all week long all I wanted to do was play putt-putt, suddenly when I realized she wasn't coming, I didn't want to go anymore. You see, my mother offered me the fulfillment of her promise, but without the gift of her presence. And without the gift of her presence, my mother's promise seemed meaningless. Well, I share that story with you this morning because I believe that gives you a window into what the Israelites were experiencing in Exodus chapter 33. The book of Exodus is all about the God who makes promises. 
God made a promise in the early chapters of the Bible, the book of Genesis. He made a promise to Abraham that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars and that God would give his descendants a special land and that they would flourish as a people and as a people they would bring blessing to all the world. And in the book of Exodus, all of God's promises are in jeopardy. Because the Israelites have been enslaved under the oppressive thumb of Pharaoh for 400 years. They're far away from the land God promised. They're not a free people. They're not free to bless anybody. They're enslaved. And in the book of Exodus, we see that God is radically committed to fulfilling God's promises. God raises up his servant Moses, empowers Moses to go into the courts of Pharaoh, And Moses calls down the plagues upon the Egyptians. And finally, after a series of ten plagues, Pharaoh relents and lets the Israelites go. And when Pharaoh begins to pursue them, God miraculously opens the Red Sea. The Israelites walk off into freedom. They're on their way to the land God promised. But before they get to the promised land, God invites the Israelites to make a pit stop at Mount Sinai. And there at Mount Sinai, God's going to teach them how to receive this promised land. He's going to teach them how to live as heirs of God's promise. And it's there at Mount Sinai that God gives the Ten Commandments. And it's there at Mount Sinai that God enters into a covenant relationship with the people of Israel. Now, a covenant relationship is a relationship that's built on fidelity and trust. A marriage is a covenant relationship. If you're married, you know that the bedrock of your marriage is we are faithful to one another and we trust one another. And that's the kind of relationship Israel enters into with their God. They say, God, you're our God and we're your people. And God says, I'm your God and you're my people. And the Israelites say, there is no other God before you. That's the first commandment. We'll worship you exclusively. You have all our praise, all our devotion belong to you, O God. And then in Exodus 32, the Israelites are still encamped at Sinai, and Moses is up on the top of the mountain. He's getting instruction from the Lord, and the Israelites are growing impatient. Why are they impatient? Because they would love to get out of the desert and into the promised land. They would love to get on with the journey so they can find their land flowing with milk and honey. And they begin to wonder if Moses has misled them. Where did he go? Why is he up there so long? And in their impatience, they decide to take all of the gold jewelry that they brought with them out of Egypt to melt it down and to shape it into a golden calf And they begin to bow down and worship the calf as if it's God. And in that moment, the covenant is betrayed. It's as though Israel is found cheating on their God. And so when we get to Exodus 33, the relationship between God and the Israelites is on the rocks. Because of the idolatry into which the Israelites have fallen. And so take a look at Exodus 33 and verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, leave this place, 
you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I'll send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, Mosquitoites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. What's happening in this moment? But God says to the Israelites, I'm going to give you everything I promised and I'm going to clear the way and all those Jebusites and Hivites that are currently there, I'll drive them out and you can go have your land flowing with milk and honey. You can have it all but you won't have me because I'm not going with you. God says, I'm going to give you all my promises, but I'm not going to give you my presence. Now, friends, let me ask you this. If you could have the promises of God without the presence of God, would you take that deal? Before you answer the question, Consider the way that many of us live. Many of us love to come to God asking God to fulfill the promises. God, give me the things I want. Give me the future you've promised for me. Give me the forgiveness I need. Give me the peace that passes understanding. Give me the healing from all my sicknesses and diseases. Give me, God, give me, give me, give me what you promise. Yet, when was the last time that you sat and just cherished the fact that God is with you? Right? We are, we are prone to value what God can do for us more than the goodness of the fact that God is here with us. I want you to imagine for a moment that you have a friend in your life who only calls you when they need something from you. They never call you to say hi. They never call you to ask how you're doing. They only call you when they need something from you. How do you feel about that friendship? Well, eventually you're going to feel used. Friends, is it possible that there are moments when God looks at us and says, I love you, but you're just using me, aren't you? Because it doesn't feel like you love me back. That's certainly how God is feeling in Exodus 33. I mean, you want me to take you to the promised land, but you don't really want me, do you? Because if you really wanted me, you wouldn't be bowing down to a golden calf. If you could have the promises of God without the presence of God, would you take it? When I was in seminary, there were members of a church that I was serving that invited me to their house for supper. And when I got to the house, things went about like they usually go. They greeted me and we went into the dining room and there was a place set for me at the table. But as soon as we sat down at the table, it got really strange because the family, they all checked in on how their days went and they talked about their schedule for tomorrow. And then they talked about a bunch of things that were happening in their lives, but nobody interacted with me at all. I mean, I basically sat there the entire dinner, didn't say a word. And then after dinner, they said, thanks for coming and sent me on my way. And I've thought about that experience a lot. I thought, you know, that must be what it feels like to be God sometimes. 
Because we believe in a God who's omnipresent, a God who's always in the room, a God who's as close as our beating heart, and yet oftentimes we take God's presence for granted. We forget that God's in the room. We act like God isn't in the room. Until we want something from God, and then we're sure to get on our knees and pray for it. If you could have the promises of God without the presence of God, would you take that deal? In the book of Psalms, the 42nd Psalm, we have this moment when the psalmist feels disconnected from God's presence, feels as though God is not in the room. And listen to what it says in Psalm 42.1. As the deer pants for streams of water, my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Have you ever had a thirsting in your soul for the presence of God? Have you ever had that feeling inside of you that i got to get somewhere where I can quench this thirst and where I can experience the fullness of God's presence and power? The Scriptures testify to us that the presence of God is way more powerful than the promises of God and that the greatest promise is not the land It's not the things of this world, but the greatest promise is the promise of God's presence. While the Israelites are offered the promised land without the promise giver, and they know it's a bad deal. Exodus 33, verse 4. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn. And no one put on any ornaments. Notice that when God gives the Israelites the invitation and says, you can go to the promised land without me, they don't say, sounds good to us. No, instead they're distressed. And why are they distressed? Because in this moment they realized that they have ruptured their covenant with God. In the same way, that when I saw the tears in my mom's eyes, I no longer wanted to go putt-putting. So when they see the brokenness in God's heart and when they hear the anger in God's voice, they no longer want to go to the promised land. Instead, they sit down in the dust. They take the same golden ornaments, they melt into a golden calf, and they take them off. And they lay down in the dust, humbled in the presence of the Lord something akin to the situation David found himself in. You remember when David committed murder so that he could cover up his adultery and then woke up to the fact that he had violated his relationship with God and in Psalm 51 he prays. And he says, Lord, a broken and contrite heart you will not despise. When we realize that we've taken God for granted, when we realize that we have fallen into sin, that we've violated our covenant relationship with God, the appropriate response in all occasions is to humble ourselves. We do not run from our sin. We do not hide from our sin. We do not try to cover it up. We own it. We confess it. 
and we humble ourselves and we recognize that the God who made the heavens and the earth is the ruler over us. And if God would have mercy on us, we could stand up again. But if God should choose not to have mercy on us, then we should stay down in the dust of death. And what is the good news that is told throughout Scripture? But that when we humble ourselves, God will lift us up. The book of James chapter 4 says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves before the Lord and He will lift you up. The Israelites are humbled there at the foot of Mount Sinai. They are down in a spirit of mourning. They know that they have messed up. And over time, in Exodus 33, we see Moses going in and out of the tent of meeting. He's meeting with God face to face. The people are in this season of mourning. And then skip down in Exodus 33 to to verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, You've been telling me, lead these people. But you've not let me know whom you'll send with me. You've said, I know you by name, and and you have found favor with me. If you're pleased with me, teach me your ways, so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. What is Moses doing in this moment? But he's saying, God, I, I can't lead these people into the promised land without you. I need you to teach me. Moses knows as leader of the people that he is nothing without the presence of God. He will have no authority to speak truth. He will have no wisdom to know how to navigate the travails of the desert. God, if you don't go with me, I don't know how to lead these people. I need you to teach me. And it's in that moment that God responds favorably to Moses. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you. And I will give you rest. Well, it didn't take God much convincing to go on the journey, did it? God was not interested in severing his relationship with the Israelites any more than my mother was interested in severing her relationship with me. Instead, God was trying to get the Israelites' attention and say to them, I love you. Do you even love me back? And do you recognize that I can be your teacher, that I can be your guide, that I'm your creator, and I know what's good for you better than you know what's good for you? And Moses says, Lord, you do know what's best. We can't go without you. I can't lead without you. Teach us your ways. And God says, I'm going to go with you, and I'm going to give you what I promised. I'll give you rest. But now Moses is starting to have an awakening in his heart. And Moses is starting to realize that getting the rest of Jesus, getting the rest of God without the presence of God is folly. And so listen to what he says in verse 15. This is an amazing turn that's happening. Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us from here. Moses says, we don't want the promised land if we don't have the promised giver. We would rather stay here in the desert and sweat the rest of our lives. We would rather stay here and thirst for physical water, but we do not want to thirst for your presence. Do not send us from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? 
What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I'm pleased with you and I know you by name. Moses says, God, don't leave us. Moses says, God, wherever you are, that's where we'll be. If it's in the land flowing with milk and honey, great. But if it's in the dry and barren wilderness, then that's where we'll be because the presence of God is the most important thing. And then Moses gets bold. And in verse 18, Moses offers a prayer that I think is a prayer that is bold and courageous. It's a prayer that I pray would be in our hearts and on our lips today. Verse 18, Moses said, Now show me your glory. Notice Moses didn't say, Now show me the promised land. He didn't say, now show me what you said you're going to do for me. He said, no, 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 God, show me your glory. In the Old Testament Hebrew, the word glory is the word kavod. Turn to your neighbor and say kavod. Oh, good Hebrew scholars you are. Say kavod. The word kavod literally means weightiness. So in the Bible, when we're talking about the glory of our God, we're talking about the weightiness of, of God's presence. That's why when the glory of God would descend upon the Israelites in Exodus, it was a thick cloud that would weigh down over Mount Sinai, right? God's presence is weighty. It's full. It's complete. And here's the thing you need to know. When you are in the presence of God, that presence will outweigh everything else in this world. That presence will outweigh your worries. That presence will outweigh your anxieties. That presence will outweigh your wants and desires. It will outweigh every circumstance that you face. The glory of God is the full weight of God's presence. Now Moses, of every human who had walked the earth to that point, Moses experienced more of God's glory than anyone else. He was the one that was there on the mountainside when the bush was burning and took off his shoes on holy ground. He was the one who stood in the courts of Pharaoh and tapped his staff and caused all those plagues to happen. He was the one who witnessed the parting of the Red Sea and, and saw water coming forth from the rock. Moses had seen glimpses of God's glory and in this moment he says, God, don't show me the promised land anymore. Give me more of you. May your presence have more weight in my life. See, here's the thing. Moses experienced this. Others in the Bible experienced this. The more you know God, the more you will want to know God. The more you taste of the goodness of his presence, the more you'll want the goodness of his presence, such that eventually you won't want anything else. It reminds me of what happened to the Apostle Paul. You remember Paul? He had power and fame and prestige as a Pharisee. And then he got a taste of the goodness of Jesus. And he didn't want anything else. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 7. Paul says this, Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. 
Paul had every privilege afforded in this life. He gave it all away so he could have this one thing, to know Jesus. And the more he knew Jesus, the more he wanted to know Jesus. And the more he felt the presence of God, the more he wanted to be in the presence of God. To the point where Paul wrote those words from a Roman prison cell. He gave up his earthly freedom in order to find the eternal freedom of knowing Jesus. So friends, what am I saying to you today? What I'm telling you is this. God has made some eternal promises to us. But those promises have very little to do with the things of this world. And they have everything to do with his presence. In Matthew chapter 1. When the birth of Jesus is being announced. Jesus is given a name from the Old Testament. Do you remember what that name is? Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Jesus, the very presence and power of God, comes into the world, and through the Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, who will teach us all things and lead us to Christ, through the Spirit, Christ is present in your life today. Do you realize that you do not need to go into a tabernacle? You don't need to go to Mount Sinai. You don't need a mediator like Moses. But by the blood of Jesus, you have direct access to the very presence of God, the full weight of God's glory in your life, any moment, anywhere, anytime, and we take it for granted. When Christ gave his life on the cross, the veil in the temple was torn. There's no barrier between you and God now. His presence is fully available to you. And yet too often we say, God, I just want your promises. You already have the best promise. Emmanuel, God, is with us. A lot of times in my life when I try to think about what heaven is like, as I read the scriptures, I say, well, what does the scripture say about heaven? What is heaven like? And the thing that's just there over and over and over again is heaven is the place where God is. And when you're in the presence of God, you are tasting heaven. It's why on the cross, when the thief turned to Jesus, this thief who was dying, he turned to Jesus and he said, Jesus, remember me. When you go into your kingdom, what did Jesus say to him? Today. You'll be in paradise. How could today be the day of paradise when today we're hanging on a cross? Because you're with Jesus. And heaven is not so much about where you are, it's about who you're with. And when you're with Jesus, you are tasting the kingdom of heaven even when hanging on the hardwood of a cross. The end of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 28. You'll get there eventually, maybe next year. The last words Jesus speaks in that gospel are this promise. Surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. How many of you believe that Jesus is in this room? How many of you believe that Jesus is here as close as your beating heart, as near as your next breath? He's here. And today I want to invite this congregation to say, show me your glory. Do you know that after Moses had this moment in Exodus 33, God revealed himself to Moses in a special way. You can read the rest of Exodus 33. It's kind of a wild story, but God's glory passes in front of Moses. Do you know what the rest of the book of Exodus is? 
It's the Israelites building a tabernacle, a really complex tent that will force them to acknowledge the presence of God in their midst. And that tent will take a long time to build. It'll take a long time to set up. And every time they move, they got to tear it down, haul it with them, and set it up again the next place they go. Do you think the tabernacle makes it any faster to get to the promised land? No. It'll slow them down. But the tabernacle will force the Israelites to do what? Stop and be in the presence of God. And I am telling you right now, there are many of us who are moving way too fast through this life. And we need some tabernacle moments. We need to stop and set up a tabernacle and say, God, come and be with me here. And I don't want anything from you, but I just want to sit in your presence. And I just want to learn from you. And I just want to sit at your feet because you're the God of heaven and earth. You're the God who made me and you want a relationship with me. And so I'm going to sit in your presence. So I want to do that this morning. I want to set up a tabernacle in this place. I'm going to invite the band to come and lead us in another song of worship. And as they lead us in this closing song of worship, I just want to invite you to bask in the presence of God. And if you have never known the fullness of God's love for you, I pray this would be your moment that you would make your heart and yourself available to God. And if you're sitting in your living room hearing my words right now, hear me, your living room can become your altar today. Your house can be your tabernacle. Let the Spirit of God come and dwell in you. And when we confess our sins and humble ourselves in the presence of the Lord, He is faithful to come to us and to give us rest. So as you're able, I invite you to stand to your feet. And let's pray for the Spirit of God to rain down in this place. Almighty God, we thank you that you're here. You're in the room. We thank you that you should love us enough not to run away from us in our sin, but to run closer to us still. And I pray, God, in this moment of worship that each one of us would hear you whispering in our ears that you love us. And God, I pray that the full weight of your glory would be made known in this place. We bask in your presence. We glory in your goodness. We give you all praise, almighty God. Amen.